In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the back side of your message notes or on page 779. Please follow along as I read. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it? that we hear each one of us in his own native tongue, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with a new wine. This is the word of God. They are filled with new wine. Did you hear that? Here we are sitting in a saloon. I thought it was just kind of ironic that we get to talk about wine on a day when we're the second day and we're indoors at a saloon. It just sort of strikes me kind of funny. They're filled with new wine. The very first public comment that we have in Scripture, when the Holy Spirit came to the church, the very first response of the community around them was this. Was what? These guys are drunk. What's the matter with these folks? There was something about the coming of the Holy Spirit which brought a tremendous change of life into those people. You know, when someone is drunk or under the influence, we say they're under the influence as if something has taken over them. They're not acting in the normal way. They're acting differently. And the Bible itself even says in Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So there's an obvious parallel between what it looks like when people are under the influence of alcohol and the influence of the Holy Spirit. But I hope it doesn't mean we are kind of goofy and forget what we do the next day. We don't want that. You know, the, 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 what did it look like when the Spirit was given? They were filled with new wine. Somehow the giving of the Spirit came in such a way that people thought, this is really bizarre. What's going on with this people? What was it that had happened? What had happened was that these people who were praying together for 10 days in a room, for 10 days after Jesus had ascended into the heavens, for 10 days they had gathered together about twice as many people who are here today. They gathered together in that room praying and waiting. They obeyed, they prayed, they waited, and suddenly on the day of Pentecost, a day we will talk about as time goes on, Something dramatic happened to them. Tongues of fire came, and they saw them resting upon. There was a thunderous roar of wind. The Holy Spirit's called wind. There was a thunderous roar of wind, and suddenly they were able to speak languages they had never 
learned, in this case, not some sort of heavenly prayer language, but instead an actual language, the language of the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the Persianites, the Persians, all those fancy words which Greg did such a good job of reading for us this morning. Uh, and those words, those people who did speak Greek, who did probably speak some Hebrew, who had come into Jerusalem to worship, they heard the works of God, the mighty works of God, in their own language. And they were amazed. And some of them said, this is goofy. What is going on? Have you ever walked into a room where everybody's speaking a different language? It's like, what? It's disorienting, isn't it? Well, this is what had happened. People, and what is Peter's response? If, if you have your Bibles, and I, I hope you do, because I couldn't print the whole text here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you will notice that when they said this, Peter stood up among the group, and he says, these people aren't drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. What time did Pentecost happen the first day? About 9 o'clock. What time did you come to church today? About 9 o'clock. I just think it's beautiful. When the Spirit came, it looked like they were drunk, and yet Peter said, no, it's not. It's way too earlier. What must it have been like for people to think something's going on with those people? Somehow, the giving of the Spirit changed people in such a way so as to make them appear inebriated. I don't think they really thought that. They just couldn't figure out why Joe Schmo was speaking a language he never heard before. It was disorienting. They were amazed, and, uh, and they were uncertain what to do about it. And so we have here the glorious beginning of the church. And this today, Pentecost Sunday, the end of the church year that we've been kind of following that began with Advent, with the prom pre preparation for the coming of the Messiah during the month of December, and continued through Christmas and the time when we celebrated the birth of of Jesus Christ throughout the period of January and February as we thought about his life together and then the last months before April as we together through the Lord's Prayer Project thought about Jesus as he moved toward his death which we celebrated uh, in April of this year and then his resurrection which happened on Sunday, Easter Sunday. We have been in that glorious season of life called Eastertide in the 40 days following Easter which ended a week ago Thursday when Jesus was with them explaining to them how how it was that he had been the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the promised Messiah who gave his life for the sins of Israel and, yes, for the whole world. And then he left, as we talked about last week, and they went into that upper room, the same upper room, likely, where they had celebrated the Lord's Supper with Jesus 40 days before, and for 10 consecutive days, maybe some of them even stayed there. We don't know how it all happened. It was men and women, 120 of them gathered together they prayed and waited for the promise of the Father, which Jesus had said he would send soon. And then they came in to gather early that Sunday morning, probably around 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock or so, and began to just have church like they'd always been having it the last few days, coming together, talking together, praying together, seeking the Lord together, studying the Scriptures together, waiting together, when suddenly, shortly before 9 o'clock, Tongues of fire came, wind came, a cloud came, and all of a sudden, they were amazed. It was a beautiful, beautiful time, and we're going to think about it today because it's an important 
his part of the history of the church. I may be a little bit more historical today than you might want me to be, but that's the way. I, I think it's important to understand the background of some of these things. So I want you to take a look, and you can jot down this in your notes as well as we consider this Pentecost Sunday and how it tied into the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church and how the world was changed that day. Consider, first of all, Pentecost and the Exodus. Pentecost and the Exodus. I have several points like this. They're easy to jot down. You might want to put a few notes if you like. You see, Pentecost was one of the three most important festivals for the people of Israel. The first was Passover, which happened just before what we now call as Easter, okay? And then there was the first fruits, what got, got, came to be called the Pentecost, Pente having you with the 50 days. 50 days after that, the second great festival, and then in the fall, the, the atonement, the Day of Atonement. Those three great festivals, these are the three times annually when devout Jews were to come back into the city of Jerusalem together and uh, reclaim their roots as the people of God, the people who had been saved because God had passed over them in Egypt and brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and made them, uh, set them free from slavery and called them to be himself. And then Pentecost, which for them had two meanings, we'll talk about as we go, had to do with, first of all, the first fruits when at the beginning of the harvest, when the grain first came out of the year, you'd come and present the first part of the grain to the Lord as a, as a signal of the fact that it all had come from God and belonged to God and you were trusting God for what would come afterward. It's really the first part where we get the idea of making, giving offerings to the Lord. The first fruits, because it was an agricultural con- economy, that was how that they did it. But it was also their understanding that it took them 50 days to get from uh, uh, the Red Sea down to Sinai where God came in the mountain and, and the covenant was established and the law was given. And this was their time to remember that. And then in the atonement, the day of atonement in the fall, they had these three great festival periods. And this was the second of those three, the day of Pentecost, the festival of the first fruits. As I said, it was a, both, an, uh, as I indicated, it was an agricultural festival and an historical festival. It was an agricultural festival in that it was the day when the farmers brought the first sheaf of, sheaf of wheat from the crop and offered it to God, partly as a symbol of their gratitude to God and partly as a prayer that the rest of the crop would be gathered in. It was the festival of the first fruits. It was an agricultural festival. But it also became an historical festival during the period following the Old Testament because it was the 50th day after Passover. And Pentecost commemorated the journey out of Egypt, which the people, Israel, had taken centuries before, that time when God had rescued them and established his covenant with them on Mount Sinai. They began, their tradition began to affirm that day, 50 days later, as the time to remember the giving of the law, the Torah, there on the mountain at Sinai, where Moses received, where he received the law. So it was an agricultural festival, but it was also an historical festival. It was an agricultural festival in the sense that the Pentecost is the offering of the first fruits of the crop to God. But with deep historical significance, too, it is not simply the first fruits. It is also the recognition that by bringing them out of Egypt and establishing his covenant with them on Mount Sinai, God is giving to them a brand new of life, new way of life, a brand new identity, a brand new mission of the world. It was a day of new beginnings to remind them that as God had given them their law, they were responsible to live now as the people of God in the world 
That historical background has significance for us. When we think about the day of Pentecost and the church now receiving God's new covenant and living as God's new people in the world. Do you see where I'm going with that? Yes. So the fact that the Spirit came down at Pentecost should not be looked overlooked. So that's the Pentecost and the Exodus, the Exodus story. Secondly, Pentecost and the Spirit. Pentecost and the Spirit. Luke is drawing some important, Luke, the author of Acts, is drawing some important lessons for us when he describes the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost Sunday. How was the Spirit given in the Old Testament? Well, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God was not generally available in the Old Testament. No one expected the Spirit to be on all humanity. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit came on certain peoples and on certain times. Prophets would receive the Holy Spirit and then be given the Word of God. Sometimes the kings would be given the Holy the Spirit and be able to lead for God. But there was not this general sense of the Spirit. However, late in Israel's history, there came this uh, understanding from the Spirit of God that someday the Spirit would not just be given to individual persons for a period of time, but would be cast indiscriminately across all humanity. And so Ezekiel, one of the late prophets, wrote this in this 36th chapter of Ezekiel. Speaking out of God's mouth, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And, excuse me. And I will remove the heart from your flesh and give you a heart. Uh, 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 it goes like this. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. There is the understanding that an external law would never fix what was wrong with the people. That was needed was for the law of God to get written on their hearts. And that the way that God would do that was by pouring out his spirit among the people. And then there was that prophecy from Joel, Joel 2, which actually Peter quoted when he gave this sermon following the text we're studying today. That prophecy said, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. My goodness, not just kings, not just prophets, not just a period of time, but for all flesh, men and women, slave and free, all people, old and young, will receive the Spirit of God. This was a promise for which they had been waiting, but about which they didn't know how it would come to take place. No doubt Luke wants us to see that when the church was filled with the Spirit, this is the first fruit of the harvest that God is now going to reap in the whole world. If the day of Pentecost, that uh, festival of the weeks, was that offering of the first uh, result of the grain to the Lord, here we see the Holy Spirit given out to the world as the deposit, the earnest, the guarantee, the first fruits for all of us that we would share in what God is doing. The harvest which God is going to reap among the whole world. Oh, I get excited about this because it just gives you the background. Too often we look at just the top of the Scripture, and it gets more personal when we see how it's coming together, how that God is writing a long and huge story. And Jesus wasn't just like 
cut off the old and start with the new fresh. No, it was a fulfillment of the old. And so on this Pentecost day, we see the, the Holy Spirit given out to the whole world as the Israelites offered the first sheaves of their harvest on the 50th day after Passover. So the Spirit is given as a sign to the great harvest to come. And so when Jesus in Matthew 9 looks upon the fields and he says, the, the fields are white unto harvest. Pray that God would send out workers into his harvest. Matthew 9, 37 and so. And then what happened on the day of Pentecost? These people who were gathered in worship just for their own benefit now, seeking God corporately and privately, now became a blessing to the world, announcing to all these people the mighty works of God. And if you haven't figured it out, that still is what we do when we gather. We go to do that. Yeah. It was on Pentecost that Jesus' prayer was answered when workers were sent out into the harvest. Pentecost. Number three, Pentecost and the law. We've seen the agricultural connection to Pentecost and the Spirit. But now let's see the historical connection as well. What was the main thing that happened there on Mount Sinai? Now, as far as I know, the Old Testament doesn't tell you it was 50 days after they crossed the Red Sea and went into came to promise. It might do that. I didn't research it. What I do know is it became part of the Israelite tradition, you see. Just like we, don't, we, we, we assume the Declaration of Independence was signed on July 4th, but John Adams always thought it was on July 3rd. You know? Well, that doesn't matter. It's the principle, right? So in the same way, they had this part of the tradition that the Pentecost was the historical remembrance, not of the, not of the, uh, the Passover experience, not of the crossing the Red Sea, but the coming to the mountain of God where the law was given. What was it that happened? At the base of the mountain, they gathered together in the Old Testament. You can read this in Exodus 19 and 20 and the thereabouts in the, book, in, in the Old Testament. When they gathered at the base of the mountain towards which God and Moses had brought them, two things happened. Number one, Moses went up to the throne of God, and 40 days later, Moses came down with the law of God. Moses went up to the throne of God, and there was cloud, and there was shaking, and there was thunder, something like Pentecost, you see? Moses went up, and then he comes down with the law of God. Similarly, what do we see? On Ascension Day, 10 days prior, Jesus has gone up the heavenly mountain, so to speak, and now Jesus is coming back down. He goes up to sit on his throne as the king of all the earth where God has highly exalted him with a name which is above every name, that every, at his name every knee should bow, things in heaven and on earth and under the earth to the glory of God the Father, Philippians chapter 2. That will not be fully completed until the end of time, but it has been inaugurated now when Jesus resurrected and went to the heavens. Jesus goes up to the throne of God. And for 10 days, that's where he is. But he said to them, wait till I send you my promise. Right? And what happened? On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God came down. Jesus' Spirit himself came down. The Spirit of Jesus Christ now comes down into his community. And the law of God is not written on a tablet, which Moses now has. But where is it written? Your heart. Your heart. The internal sense of the power of God, the internal sense of forgiveness and grace of God, 
the internal sense that God is using you and that makes you want to follow God and do what God wants with you. You see, Jesus came down not in his physical person, but not with a law carved in stone, but rather he has come down through his spirit and begun to write his law on our hearts. So what does it say in chapter 2 and verse 2? Where in chapter 2, the wind came from heaven. You see? So where did Jesus go in Acts 1? To heaven. Right? He ascended to heaven. And in Acts 2, the Spirit comes from heaven. That's why Acts 1, the very beginning of it, says, Now listen, Theophilus, I, in the first book I wrote to you, I wrote you, all the things that Jesus began to do and teach from the first day until he was taken up into heaven. Began to do, what does that assume? That after Jesus went to heaven, he continued to do things. Well, how did he do them? He did them through his spirit in his followers. It's not so much the acts of the apostles. It's not even just the acts of the Holy Spirit. It's the acts of Jesus by his spirit through his people that has been going on ever since that day. That's why the ascension was so important. That's why what Jesus said was true. It is better for you that I go away. For if I go away, I will come again, right? And receive you unto myself. Yes, the point is that through the Spirit of God, the rule of heaven is coming down to earth. Not simply in the person of Jesus who said the kingdom of God is coming, but he's resident within me. But it's now coming through human beings, men and women, slaves and free, old and young, all who proclaim the mighty works of God through their lives, living here right now on this earth. The point is that through the Spirit, the rule of heaven is coming down to the earth. Again, a fulfillment of the great prayer we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on that's right, earth as it is in heaven. Why does the Spirit come? Not simply to give an ecstatic, otherworldly experience. Though no doubt it happened then and it happens today. Still, No, the Spirit's purpose is not just to give us a buzz, not simply to help us have power to live our lives well. Though, of course, that all happens. Why does the Spirit come? The Spirit comes to continue the work of Jesus of claiming this world for his own. The Spirit comes to transform this earth with the power of heaven. The Spirit comes to breathe Jesus' resurrection life into his creation, beginning with those 120 bumbling followers of Jesus and extending all the way to these 75 bumbling followers of Jesus, right? That's the way it's been going. For two millennia, God's been getting it done that way. Kingdoms have risen and fallen. Kingdoms which seem to never be able to be shaken have gone down. But the church of Jesus Christ, through the spirit of Jesus Christ, witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, fulfilling the mission of Jesus Christ, continues and will continue until Jesus returns to finish the work which we have been given to do on his behalf. Yes, it extends all the way till today. So we think about it like this. When Jesus ascended bodily to heaven, part of earth went to be in heaven. What part of earth? The resurrected body of Jesus. Jesus had an earthly body, right? It was a resurrected body. The part of earth has gone to heaven when Jesus went to go to the heavenly throne room. 
And when Jesus' spirit took up residence in his church, part of heaven came to earth. Where? With you and me. We're not Jesus, but we have the spirit of Jesus within us. So that coming together of heaven and earth, which is the way the world was created but was fractured by human sin, but which God for generations was seeking to bring back together, has now begun to come back together through Jesus Christ and his spirit. You see, the Lord's prayer is filled, fulfilled there in seed form. This is the first fruits of that great vision in Revelation when heaven and earth are finally united as the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and the voice cries, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. God living on the earth. Yes. The church then is a living witnesses, witness of God's new creation in Christ Jesus. Then next, Pentecost and the signs. Pentecost and the signs. We see that when the Spirit came, it was a, he was accompanied by some very dramatic signs. Mighty rushing wind. Tongues of fire resting. Speaking in other tongues. Well, what is this all about? Well, again, we see there's a parallel to the Mount Sinai. Because in Exodus 19, we see that on the morning of the third day, 19 verse 16, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Then Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And at the sound of the trumpet, in the sound, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. Moses went up. Do you see the day of Pentecost? Do you see what happened? Yes. There's no accident. The parallels. There's a parallel to that. So this is one reason. Or we see the mighty wind, the tongues of fire, the speaking of tongues. All these things. In part, I believe God works in this dramatic way to accentuate the new covenant which he has established through Jesus' death and resurrection. Those Jewish people there that day could not have missed, or at least the people within the room could not have missed the parallels between Sinai and this experience of the cloud and the wind and the thunder and the supernatural words of God. It was not written in stone, but it had been written in the hearts of those who now proclaim the mighty deeds of God. These dramatic signs, so far as we know, were never repeated in this way on any other occasion. These signs, wind, fire, tongues, were intended to make it crystal clear that God was doing something new among his people, that Jesus' death and resurrection had signaled a brand new day in the life of Israel, that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Mosaic law, that the new covenant had been ratified, and that God was forming a new people for himself and inviting all who would to participate in it. That's why they heard them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. Having said that, however, the uniqueness of this circumstance, it's also certainly true that the phenomenon of speaking in tongues and other dramatic things occur all the way through the rest of the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts and in various parts of the New Testament. So the sense of these dramatic evidences of the Holy Spirit didn't just stop on that day. It continued to happen. We find a, a glorious inconsistency about all this happens. Sometimes when people are filled with the Spirit, there are dramatic displays. Other times when they're filled with the Spirit, there seems to be no dramatic display. It seems as though God just wants to confuse us just enough to keep us trusting in trust. 
Sorry. Well, I just baptized my Bible. I guess that's not a bad thing. Where was I? This, this phenomenon occurs in various ways throughout the New Testament as well. And in fact, as you will no doubt know, there are whole streams of the Christian church where tongue speaking, tongue speaking is a prominent feature of the Spirit-filled life. How are we to respond to this? Well, uh, there are different ways. There are, there are some traditions which teach that this particular phenomenon of speaking in tongues was used by God only during the first generation of the church. And that once the New Testament was written, we now have the Word of God in His new, uh, the Word of the New Covenant in written form and no longer need such ecstatic utterances as occurred in the early days of the church. This group believes that at best, any current manifestation of speaking in tongues, the formal name is glossolalia, you want to impress somebody, this group would believe that it's, it's misguided, that it doesn't really come from God in an extreme form. Some people even teach it as blasphemous. Now, I'll tell you what I think. I respect this point of view, but I, but I don't share it. I welcome and we welcome any who want to be a part of our church family who have this point of view, certainly. But it seems to me that this point of view is built on a rather shaky foundation of, of biblical evidence and that it raises a dangerously, tends dangerously towards a self-righteous view towards the millions, millions of devout Christians in the last century whom tongue-speaking have been an important part of their religious and spiritual experience. So there are some who would say it is only supposed to have occurred back then. At the other extreme are people who teach that the tongue-speaking should be normative for every person who has been filled with the Holy Spirit, that everyone should experience this kind of um, uh, manifestation of the Holy Spirit when they respond to the gospel. And again... While I respect this point of view, I don't share it. I'm in the middle, as you might guess. I'm in the middle. And certainly, I welcome among us any who are at either ends of those extremes, so long as you don't make a campaign to convert everybody to your point of view. Uh, this point of view, I'm afraid as well, to me, doesn't have solid biblical evidence that there's evidence that, feels that, that not everybody gets those gifts. Just as I don't think the first point of view can seriously developed from Scripture the point of view that those gifts had to have ended, I don't see from Scripture that it teaches clearly that those spiritual gifts are mandatory for every person, those special sign, uh, sign gifts, okay? Uh, and there's a danger that people can, who can, well, anyway. And so a third view, which is the one that I hold, and many others as well, is this, that the gift of tongues like the rest of the spiritual gifts is still available to God in the, uh, to, for us and that God is sovereign and He gives to any the gifts of the gifts to the people as He wills uh, to, according to His purposes, but that it is up to God to decide who gets what gifts. So while that first view prohibits the gift of tongues and the second view prescribes the gift of tongues, my P is to permit the gift of tongues, okay? Now, whichever view you hold is just fine with me. Just don't make a campaign to convert everybody to your point of view, all right? Because we value the Scripture here and we value unity. So, these gifts are, are important and we need to be open to whatever it is that God wants to do and we must always seek to conform our way of thinking to what Scripture clearly teaches. And it seems to me that 
clear scriptures allow for some ambiguity about some of these things. And so, therefore, I trust the point of this view of the scriptures too much to try to make it say what it does not to me seem to clearly say. I know this is sort of a sidetrack, but for some of you, this was very important, okay? Um, so, I was more, I almost didn't put this in, but I thought, I don't want to be cheesy. Tell you what I think, all right? I don't know if you're wrong, but that's what I think. All right, finally, Pentecost and the promise. Pentecost and the promise. And I'm out of time, but here we go. There's something else going on here that we don't want to miss. When the Holy Spirit came, these Jews began to speak in languages from all around the Mediterranean seaboard. Suddenly, there was no language barrier. When, according to the biblical tradition, did the language barrier emerge? Well, it emerged at the Tower of Babel, remember? That's when God came and gave them confused languages. And when did the Tower of Babel occur? It occurred in Genesis 11, right after the story of Noah, Noah and his family and the ark. Now, think about this telescopic view of history. We have the creation of Adam in the first chapters of Genesis. And everything goes wrong because of Adam's sin. And the world gets so bad that God says, I'm going to start over. And I'm going to save Noah and his family. That's Genesis 6 through 10. And God saves one family and starts and sends a new covenant with this family. And in the very next chapter, chapter 11, we find that humanity has gone off the deep end already. Once more, they've begun to build this tower, trying to build civilization without God. And it got so bad that God decided to stop it by giving to them the confusion of language. That's Babel, okay? That's why we get the word Babel, right, from there. And it, now, then what happens in the very next chapter? That's chapter 11. In the very next chapter, chapter 12, God calls Abram. You see? God calls Abram. He's basically saying, I'm going to fix this problem, and I'm going to keep working at it until I get it done. And he calls Abram, and he says to him in Genesis chapter 12, and verse 3, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It was after the confusion of languages that Abram was called. And Abram was called in order to bless all the families of the earth. It was going to be through Abraham and through his descendants that the entire world would be blessed. And when did that happen? Pentecost, when the Babel was broken and the languages went forth to a whole eastern Mediterranean seaboard. This is how Israel's story began. The people of Israel would have certainly seen this as the undoing of Babel. They would have seen that God is doing the curse of ba undoing the curse of Babel right before their very eyes. By overturning the curse, the implication is that God is dramatically beginning to fulfill the initial promise to Abram and his descendants so that the, all families of the earth would be blessed. And this is exactly what happened. The world turned a critical corner that day on Pentecost some 2,000 years ago when Peter preached, and 3,000 people of various language backgrounds responded to his message, all nations of the world in seed form began to be blessed. And within a few years, did not people from every known tribe and tongue and nation come together to worship at the foot of Jesus, the crucified and resurrected criminal who we know to be God in the flesh. Yes, when Peter began that sermon, he said, these are the last days. God has poured out his spirit on all flesh without distinction, men and women, slaves and free, young and old, and everyone, he says, who calls upon the name of the Lord will be 
saved. This is the glorious news of the gospel, which was unleashed through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. God pours out his Spirit on us as we call upon his name. Let's call upon the name of Jesus. Let's believe in the power of his Spirit. And let us be filled with him so that out of our lives can flow forth the mighty works of God. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, you seem like such an ancient story, and yet it's so personal to today because here we sit in the world today. And your spirit still wants to go forward. Help us to be open to what you have. And some of us who've been holding out on you, may this be the moment when we say, I'm all in. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will live in his presence. Help us do that, we pray in Jesus' name.